Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, we read this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. He came to the disciples and said, sleep and take your rest later on. Behold, the hour is at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, my betrayer is at hand. The spiritual affliction laid upon Jesus' soul in the Garden of Gethsemane was heavy. The agonies of Calvary were laid out on the horizon before him. Death was close. And Jesus was sorrowful unto death. How did Jesus stand in that evil day? How did he keep himself from becoming shaken by the schemes of the evil one? How how did Jesus keep his faith? How did he draw upon the strength of God? How was he able to go to the cross so that sinners like us, all who repent and believe, might live? How? Prayer. Jesus looked to God for strength and stood faithfully because he was relying on God the Father through prayer. His battle strategy was not complicated or convoluted. It was a simple commitment to pray, to trust the goodness of God the Father and to obey. 
We come this morning to the conclusion of the book of Ephesians, and this will be part one of that conclusion since things didn't work out the way I planned. Uh, But uh, we will come to part one to the conclusion, and and we discover Paul is prescribing here uh, the same simple strategy used by Jesus. He's saying to, to stand against the schemes of Satan, pray. Because prayer epitomizes what it means to be strengthened by God. Prayer is how you power the armor of God. Prayer takes the truths of the doctrines of grace and makes them come alive in our hearts. It's through prayer that we discover the Spirit's work at work through the Word in us. Main idea, still this, we're still on that section about standing against those spiritual forces of evil. And the main idea is the church must depend on the Lord's strength to stand and fight against her foes. Our exhortation this morning is to be strong in the Lord, to depend on Jesus, to put on the armor of God, to stand, to fight, and, and namely here specifically is where we're focused in on this morning, to pray, to pray. You can see your outline there before you. Uh, It's in three parts, and you'll actually notice the third part is going to be its own uh, sermon a couple weeks from now. But you can see this morning in there, you want to pray at all times. We want to pray for all things, and we want to pray for all the saints. That's how I would break apart this last section. And we're just going to touch on A and B, praying at all times and praying for all things this morning. Those are the, the two main points Uh, that we're going to try to press home. So let's pray. Uh, We'll begin our time together this morning. And uh, yeah, let's do it. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together in your name to give you glory. We thank you for the access we have to you through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you that we can come and pray, that we can thank you for uh, big things and for small things, that we can thank you for getting us out of bed this morning, and we can thank you for putting breath in our lungs. We can praise you for the changing of the colors of the leaves in the fall, and we can, we can praise you for hanging the planets in the sky. You are God, and yet you hear us. You make time for us. That is marvelous. Help us to hear you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've summarized Ephesians by breaking it into two halves. Uh, We've called the first half, and this is where you participate now since we're coming up to the end of it and we we want this to be driven home, right? Uh, The first half is doctrine, doctrine, that's right. And the second half is devotion, right? Ephesians is about doctrine and devotion. Those first three chapters want to drive home the point to us that God has chosen to adopt into his one family all who believe in Jesus, We were once dead in our sins, disciples of Satan and God because of his great love with which he loved us, not because of anything we did, not because of our own choosing, but because of his love. God, when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Those who believe in Jesus have been adopted into the family of God 
and made alive by Christ. That's the really the doctrine. You can walk away in Ephesians, right? You go, all right, Ephesians is about doctrine and devotion. And the doctrine part, one of the, those main highlighting features is that God has chosen to adopt into his family all who believe. And those who believe are those who God has made alive. Turn our attention then to devotion, those second three chapters, four through six. And this section tells us not how to become Christians, as if we could do X, Y, and Z and make ourselves right with God. No, that's not the gospel. It doesn't tell us how to become Christians, but how to live now that we are Christians, now that we've experienced grace, now that we've been made alive, now that we are adopted into the family of God. And so we, uh, who have been adopted into the family of God, are learning to live up to the family name. We're learning to, to walk like the family. And our family, the, the Christian family, the family of God, has a particular style to the way we walk. And Paul tells us how we are to walk, right? Walk is this Hebrew idiom uh, for how you live. And so he says, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which you've been called. You're to walk in unity, promoting peace in the body, building up the body in love, throwing off sound doctrine. We're, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we've been called. We're to walk not as the Gentiles do, that's as the world does. Don't walk like those who do not know God, who are darkened in their understanding. They don't have spiritual eyes to see because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Don't walk that way. Walk as those who have received the Holy Spirit and who once were blind, but now see. Walk as those who have your minds renewed by the Spirit. And we see we are to walk in love. We are to walk as children of the light. And in verse 15 of chapter 5, the last time this verb shows up, we are told to walk not as unwise, but as wise. And that is the command that hangs over the conclusion of Ephesians. It's like a banner. We're told to walk wisely by knowing what the will of the Lord is, by being full of the Holy Spirit. And Paul expounds on how we pursue that fullness of the Spirit. And then we come here to his finally, and I think this is the last piece of the puzzle of what it means to walk wisely, is to be strong in the Lord. Christians are to walk in wisdom, in light, in the context of evil days, the evil days in which we live, and the unseen spiritual warfare swirling around us. Paul has flashing lights going off. He wants us to know that we need to be prepared because there is an enemy seeking to devour and destroy us. And so we come to verse 10 once more this morning, and we'll read down through verse 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and all supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It's about as far as we're going to get today. Uh, Paul then concludes with a, a benediction and encouraging the saints with the letter of Tychicus. But... What we need to know right now is that Paul is informing us that we are at war. And we are at war whether we like it or not. It's as Aragorn tells the king of Rohan when he refuses to join the fight against Sauron and Soromon. He says, I will not risk open war. And Aragorn tells him, look, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. If you are a Christian, if you are following Jesus, if you have taken up your cross and are following him, you are part of the church and you are at war with the evil one. If you are part of the church, you are part of that host who is assaulting the gates of hell. And ultimately, those gates of hell will not prevail against you. But there is also a counter attack. There is an enemy who is loosing all kinds of of arrows upon you. They are metaphorical and spiritual arrows. We've talked about them. He wants to make shipwreck of your faith. And if you try to just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, you will not be able to stand in the evil day. When discouragement and suffering and loss come, you will not be able to stand. When things go really, really well for you, you're really, really happy, you will forget God. You need the Lord's strength so that you can respond appropriately to God's really good gifts and to suffering. You need to be strengthened by God. That's what Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Not in ourselves, not depending on our own willpower. We illustrated this last week by appealing to that great philosophical work, Frog and Toad. Do you remember the story? Right? Frog and Toad, they, they have this problem. They can't stop eating cookies. And so uh, they come up with a plan to rely on their willpower and, and stop eating the cookies. And they do all these different things to try and help themselves stop eating the cookies, but they can't stop. And eventually uh, they toss the cookies out to the birds and then frog or toad. I can't remember which one says to the other one, that's uh, great. We have willpower. The cookies are gone, but now I'm going home to bake a cake. And we said, here's the point. If we find ourselves relying on our own willpower, we're going to be a lot like frog and toad. Not super successful, maybe for a little while, but, but not in the long run. We must depend on the power of God. We must depend on the power of God to stand against our adversaries. And we ask the question, well, how do we do this standing? And Paul provides us with a metaphor. We are to put on the armor of God. 
It's the same idea as putting on Christ, putting on the armor of light, putting on the new self, right? Those uh, We see putting on the new self earlier in Ephesians and putting on Christ and the armor of light in Romans 13, right? The way that we are to stand against the enemy is by appropriating the truths of our faith. We stand by knowing Christian doctrine in our heads and by being motivated by Christian devotion in our hearts. There, there is a difference between intellectual intellectually knowing the gospel and knowing who Jesus is and knowing about the cross. The difference between that and knowing it. We need to know it. This idea of putting on the armor is, is knowing it. It's stepping into the experiential reality of grace. Friends, when we put on the armor of God, we are living according to our family name. We're putting on the, the family coat of arms, preparing ourselves to stand against the enemy. You go, well, how, how do we you know, put on that armor and find power and draw on God's strength? And I think the answer is, is prayer. We see there in verse 18, let's take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. And I think this praying at all times refers immediately, yes, to the sword of the Spirit. It's, it's through a prayer that we draw on the work of the Holy Spirit who illumines for us the word of God and makes it effective. But I also think that it goes all the way back to the beginning of this, that Paul is saying prayer is the, the energy, the, the power source that, that makes the whole thing work. Prayer in the Spirit is how we tap into and access God's strength, which is ours in Christ. I think it's important when we say pray in the Spirit, uh, we are not talking about praying in tongues. Paul's not talking about praying in tongues. Remember elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, he says, not all speak in tongues. And this is a exhortation for everybody to pray in the spirit at all times. And so whether you're a continuationist or a cessationist like me, this can't mean speaking in tongues right here. Nor does it mean becoming engulfed in some sort of you know, ecstatic experience. It's not what it means to pray in the Spirit. You go, well, what does it mean? Praying in the Spirit is having our prayers shaped, guided, and empowered by the Spirit. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes uh, that might be accompanied with all kinds of wonderful spiritual feelings. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it just looks like being faithful in prayer and coming to God when you're not feeling especially connected to him. Thus, Jesus' example in the garden. He's beginning to feel the agonies of the cross already. He's beginning to feel what it's going to be to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And yet in those dark moments where his intimacy with the Father doesn't feel warm as it always has, he calls out in trust and in faith, and, and he continues to do that even, even to his death on the cross when he announces, why have you forsaken me? He still trusts, trusts the Father. Likewise, uh, when we pray in the Spirit, we are 
primarily expressing our trust in the Father. To pray in the Spirit is to have our um, posture and our prayers shaped, guided, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is what prayer is. It's dependence on God, not on our feelings. And it's good news that even when we do not know what to pray, the Spirit prays for us. Love that in Romans, that the Spirit intercedes with groanings on our behalf. If we are to stand firm against our rival and endure the evil days, we must depend on God through prayer. We must pray at all times for all things and for the saints. You see that at all times comes from verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. So so when is a good time to pray? All the time, right? There's never an inappropriate time to pray. That doesn't mean you should stand up in the middle of a movie or a wedding ceremony and announce that you're going to begin praying for everyone. That might be a little little out of place. Uh, But every occasion is an opportunity for prayer, right? We take Paul's meaning. Everywhere, all the time, we can and should have a posture of prayerful dependence on the Lord. When Paul calls us to pray, as he does here, or to pray without ceasing, as he does elsewhere, he's not requiring us to always have head bowed and eyes closed. He's exhorting us to depend on God at all times. He's saying every moment of your life needs to be lived with an awareness of the fact that God is with you and is actively involved in your life, your attitudes, your thoughts, and your actions. To pray always is to continually recognize your dependence on God and to enjoy consciously the union you have with Christ. So what does it mean to pray at all times? At least three things. One, a consistent awareness of dependence on God. I think you see a little bit of that in verse 18c, right? It says, uh, says, standing, I'm sorry, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Keep alert with all perseverance in this idea that We need to have a consistent awareness of our dependence on God, to be alert. So a consistent awareness of dependence on God, that is a prayerful posture, is what it means to pray at all times. To pray at all times, it means also to pray regularly or frequently, right, in all perseverance. And so I think we're helped to understand uh, this, what it means to pray at all times, when we read Paul's own words back in uh, Ephesians 1.16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And it's obvious he's not just giving thanks for the Ephesians 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, he has to take take break to write some of these other epistles. Rather, what he means is that he is regularly and frequently giving thanks for them in prayer. And so the charge here is to constant and prayerful posture, a continual dependence on God, and to a regular and frequent practice of going before God. The question comes, well, okay, I should pray for 
for all things, and I should pray regularly and frequently, how often should I pray? Perhaps you be helped in the regularity of your prayer life by praying every time you commit yourself to doing something else that you do regularly. So for example, if you ask Chelsea what I do in my free time, I'm almost certain that the first thing she will mention is sports. And she'll do so with a little bit of disgust in her voice, right? She'll say, he listens to sports, he watches sports, he talks about sports, football uh, and hoops. She's right. Football and hoops are a regular feature in my life. And so a good strategy for me is to use my consumption of athletics as opportunities which prompt me to pray. So I get ready to, to sit down and, and watch a game while I pray. You know, get ready to throw on a podcast, pray, and check a score, pray. This is a, a, just an easy way to build the practice of frequent prayer into my life. Here's, what, here's how this, I think, might be helpful to you. We don't want to allow any part of our lives to be divorced from a prayerful dependence on God. So maybe you hate sports. That doesn't work for you. But maybe you, you're into to Minecraft or Zelda. Or maybe you watch a lot of cable news. Maybe you build puzzles like Jerry. Whatever it is that you already do regularly, use this as a natural reminder you know, a little alarm that reminds you to pray. This will increase the frequency of prayer in your life. Allow me also to commend to you setting up a specific time to pray a little bit more in depth each day. I think it works really well if you can wall off uh, 20 minutes to an hour at some point to give yourself to the word of God and prayer. Now, for many of you, that seems like a huge task, but, you know, start with 10 minutes. Give yourself to the word of God and prayer. Spend time reading the word, then think about the word, and then pray the word. I find it really helpful, too, to write out my prayers, many of them, with a pen and a pad. Maybe, I mean, you could even follow the example of Daniel, who prays three times a day. Here's the point. Bottom line, we need to build the practice of prayer into our lives. And it is especially important and helpful to marry our prayer to God's word so that we're not just simply worrying in God's direction, so that we are reminded to give God thanks, so that we're reminded about God's wonderful character, so that we're we're led to praising him and praying in accord with his will. Wonderful example of how Um, impactful this can be comes from uh, John Piper's wonderful book, Desiring God. If you only read one work by Piper, you should read Desiring God. It is an excellent book. Uh, And in it, he includes George uh, Mueller. I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, but we'll try it. George Mueller's reflection on the importance of putting together prayer in God's words. And so Piper records uh, Mueller's words this way. Uh, and this is a lengthy quote, so stay with me. It says, While I was staying at Nailsworth, it pleased the Lord to teach me a truth. Irrespective of human instrumentality, as far as I know, the benefit of which I have not lost, though now more than 40 years have passed. 
The point is this. I saw more clearly than ever that the first and great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how much I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished or I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world. And yet, not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended to in a right spirit. Before this time, my practice had been, at least for 10 years previously as a habitual thing, to give myself to prayer after having dressed in the morning. Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation upon it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus while meditating, my heart might be brought into experiential communion with the Lord. I began therefore to meditate on the New Testament from beginning early in the morning. The first thing I did, after having asked in a few words the Lord's blessing upon his precious word, was to begin to meditate on the word of God, searching, as it were, into every verse, to get blessing out of it. Not for the sake of the public ministry of the word, not for the sake of preaching on what I had meditated upon, but for the sake of obtaining food for my own soul. The result I have found to be almost invariably is this, that after a few minutes, my soul has been led to confession, to thanksgiving, to intercession, to supplication, so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer, but to meditation, yet it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. The difference Listen now, the difference between my former practice and my present one is this. Formerly when I rose, I began to pray as soon as possible and generally spent all my time until breakfast in prayer, or almost all the time. At all events, I almost invariably began with prayer. But what was the result? I often spent a quarter of an hour or half an hour or even an hour on my knees before being conscious to myself of having derived comfort, encouragement, humbling of soul. And often, after having suffered much from wandering of mind for the first 10 minutes or quarter of an hour or even half an hour, right? You guys can relate now, right? Your mind's beginning to wander, right? Uh, He says, only then I began to really pray. Here he concludes, I scarcely ever suffer now in this way, for my heart being nourished by the truth, being brought into experiential fellowship with God, I speak to my father and to my friend, vile though I am and unworthy of it, about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. Brothers and sisters, the word of God and prayer go together. And I'm not saying all of your prayers have to be just immediately tied to God's word. What what I am saying is that God's word and 
prayer and God's spirit all work together. And if you want to have a increase in the stability and the vibrancy of your prayer life, it will be a good practice for you to give yourself to the Word. There's a great discipline to pray the Word. We try to to model this during our scripture reading most weeks, right? We'll read you a passage of scripture, and then we will pray that passage right back. A good example, you know, Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And then we will pray, Father, make our words acceptable to you. Make the meditations of our hearts acceptable to you. Help us to love your word. So something like that. It's good to pray God's word back to him. We take up the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God together in prayer. We are to pray at all times. Brothers and sisters, pray. Pray at all times. Have a posture of dependence on God. Pray frequently. Before we move on to point B, which will be a little shorter, one last thing. I think it's interesting to note that when Paul tells the Thessalonians to pray always. He gives them some instructions about how to do it. Not that he hasn't given us instructions here, right? He tells us that we need to keep alert with all perseverance, but, but just listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So rejoice always. How? By praying without ceasing. Specifically, you know what that is? By giving thanks in all circumstances. Listen now. Constant joy in Christ, that rejoicing always, comes from a constant giving of thanks to Christ. You with me? He says, rejoice always. Well, how can we rejoice always, Paul? Well, you pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, because this is the will of Christ Jesus, the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Constant joy in Christ comes from a constant giving thanks to Christ. So you want want to be happier and more satisfied in Jesus? You want to rejoice always? regularly and frequently give thanks to God in prayer. Develop a posture of prayer. Build the instinct of prayer into your life. What joy? Pray. Depend on God. Draw on the strength of God. Give thanks. We also know that giving thanks in all things is part of how we are to walk in wisdom and be full or pursue being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Remember that back in in verse 18, right? Don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. Be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we we get full of the Holy Spirit, Paul? Well, by pursuing, you pursue the fullness of the Spirit by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Friends, the call to prayerfulness so that we might stand against Satan is a call to joy in Christ. It's a call to thanksgiving. Be aware that Satan's, one of his favorite arrows is discouragement. One of his favorite ways to discourage us is by tempting us towards ungratefulness. You want to stand against the schemes of the devil? Well, you must draw on the strength of God. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Constant joy in Christ comes from giving thanks to God in prayer. Want to stand against the devil? Pray at all times. This will inflame your joy in Christ. The devil can't touch it. Pray at all times and pray for all things. This is what Paul is getting at with all prayer and supplication. You see that also in verse 18. He says, pray at all times in the spirit with all or every prayer and supplication or, or request. Paul's saying, bring every and all kinds of prayer to God all the time. Friends, what that is simple. What that means is uh, pray about big things and pray about small things. God cares about those little things in your life. He rules over the stars and the sky and galaxies, as well as birds and bacteria, diseases and dust mites. God's providence controls every atom and cork and tree branch. Here's the point. Not only can God handle your small requests, he delights to. It's not as if God has an inbox for prayer uh, and it gets so full that he ignores uh, those small prayers, right? Or they get pushed into the junk file. He cares about all of it. God cares about you. I mean, pray about lost keys and and upcoming tests and projects at work and, and home. Pray about getting sleep at night, right? God, God can handle all of it. Cares about big things, and he doesn't despise the day of small things. One of my favorite stories in the Bible comes in Second Kings chapter six, and at the front end, we read a latter part of it this morning during our, our scripture reading to illustrate the spiritual warfare that is always around us. But one of my favorites comes in the front front end of Second Kings six. Uh, you have this enigmatic group, the the sons of the prophets, uh, and they kind of hang out with Elijah eventually and, and Elisha, and they, they tell Elisha that their current place it's you know where they're staying it's just too small. So like, hey, can we move and we'll cut down some we'll cut down some trees and we'll build a facility by the Jordan? Does that work for you? And Elisha answers with one word: "He's like, go." And like, actually, could you come with us? That would be great. And he goes, okay, all right, I'll come. And so Elisha comes with them and the project begins. And while one of the guys is, is felling a tree, uh, the head of his axe 
flies into the waters of the Jordan. And he bemoans this fact. And he says, you know, alas, my Lord, it was borrowed. Right? And it's a, it's a serious deal. Serious enough for him to come to Elisha about it. And, and this is what happens. He comes to Elisha, he tells him about it. And we read in 2 Kings 6, verse 6. Then the man of God said, it's Elisha, where did it fall? When the man who had lost the axe had showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it. Elisha threw the stick into the water and made the iron float. And Elisha said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Again, the next, next verse totally shifts the reader's attention to a different event, leaving, leaving you thinking, why this random story about a floating axe head? It, isn't this something kind of unimportant and superfluous to the big story of Israel? Why does the author include it? This is precisely the point of the story. Seemingly insignificant miracle reminds the reader that God has not abandoned his people, that God is still at work in his word. Additionally, as we come to the story, we find that it demonstrates God's care for the marginal things in our lives. God acts in a miraculous way to spare an unknown man some embarrassment and some money. Brothers and sisters, God cares about the axe heads in your life. Pray about them. Pray about big things and small things, speeding tickets and retirement, you know, what to eat and where to attend church. Pray about all things at all times. Our Lord has a big heart and he delights to hear from his children. You realize that Jesus had to die for us to have this kind of access to God. Jesus died so that we might relate to God as father rather than as judge. We have access to God because of the cross. In Ephesians 2.18 reminds us of this. He says, for through Jesus, through him, we both, this is Jew and Gentile alike, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Brothers and sisters, we were cut off from God, just as every person who has ever drawn breath is cut off from God, dead in sins, without hope in the world, following their hearts instead of listening to God's word. Our sinful rebellion, just like every person who's ever lived, our sinful rebellion earned for us the righteous wrath of God towards evil. And yet, because of God's great love, because of his grace, Jesus came and shed his blood on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin and purchasing to himself all who believe. We can now come to God not as, not as righteous judge, though he is that. But we come to know him not as the judge, but as our loving and caring father. Through, only through faith in Christ. Non-Christian, cultural Christian, 
You're not good with God. You're in sin. God relates to you not as loving father, but as judge. Perhaps that will change today as you acknowledge Jesus' substitutionary death in the place of his people and his justifying resurrection. Jesus died so that all who trust in him might live, that this is the grace of God. The gospel offers to any who will come to Christ the opposite of what what they deserve. Non-Christian God offers you peace and blessing instead of wrath and curse. He offers you life instead of death. Trust Jesus. Call out to God in the name of Jesus for salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Christian, you have access to God on the basis of Jesus' blood in the Spirit. It isn't isn't access that, that God begrudges because in Christ you are his beloved. Realize that he loves you. He delights to hear from you. You have unhindered access to God. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from Tim Keller, uh, and I'm going to mess it up, but I'll, I'll just tell it to you the best I can. He says, there's only one person who dares wake up a king in the middle of the night for a glass of water. It's a child. Anyone else, they wake up the king in the middle of the night, always sleeping, there, there's going to be consequences But the king's son, the king's son has unique access to him. Church, you have that kind of access. You have, in Christ, become sons of God. And you have that kind of access to God. Pray. God delights to hear from you, even if it's about a glass of water or an axe head. Pray. Church, we are at war. We must stand. We must fight. We must pray. Pray at all times. Pray for all things. Pray for all the saints. More on that next week. Follow Jesus' example in the Lord's Prayer. Pray for big things, thy kingdom come, and pray for little things. Give us this day our daily bread. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you love us, that you sent Christ to die for us. Thank you that our sins are forgiven in him, and that we are yours Lord, we ask that you would make prayer not a last resort in our lives, but our first response. Lord, remind us this morning that prayer is not optional for those who know you. It is oxygen. It is one of the primary ways that we commune with you. You speak to us in your word, and we speak to you in prayer. Help us to Listen well to you and respond to your 
word and your loving kindness with devotion, dependence, with prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.